Today, January 17, 2018, this is Born to Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson. I hope everybody is staying warm. I see it's cold all around the United States. Even saw earlier this morning or yesterday that the entire state of Texas was closed. Uh, so I hope everybody is staying warm, staying safe, and getting opportunity to maybe play in the snow should you have uh, some of that near you. Nothing really of note to mention or anything to bring to your awareness at the top of the episode. So we're going to roll right into our interview with Army veteran Danielle Carraza. She is currently the National Outreach Coordinator at the Center for Women Veterans for the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, working alongside alongside Kayla Williams, who's been on the show uh, before. Daniel and I recorded this before she had started, but she knew she she had gotten accepted for the position. Uh, she has since started and is doing great work over at the Center for Women Veterans. Her and I are going to talk about her service. She's going to talk about being a caregiver. She's going to talk about being a VA patient uh, and much, much more entrepreneurship, all that sort of stuff. So it's a great interview. I know you're going to like it. Enjoy. There are nearly 2 million women veterans who served and deserve the best care anywhere. VA is dedicated to meeting the unique needs of all women veterans. VA offers comprehensive primary care and women's health specialty care. Women veterans who are interested in receiving care at VA should call the Women Veterans Call Center at 855-VA-WOMEN or contact the nearest VA Medical Center and ask for the Women Veterans Program Manager. Visit www.va.gov slash womenvet. Daniel Carraza. Did I say that right? You did. I'm really bad at, uh, at names. It's um, a lot of vowels. We start these up, these interviews with the same question. The one thing all veterans have in common is the decision to join the United States military. Bring us back to that decision for you. So I got out of high school a little bit early. I was uh, 16. I had grown up. Um, both of my parents are veterans, a Marine Corps and Navy brat. So I was very familiar with the lifestyle. And my college plans were thwarted by the fact that I couldn't secure a contract because I wasn't 18 yet. And so I decided I was going to go into the military and I was going to do green to gold and retire at 37. Uh, I was gonna, I had a grand master plan. So the day that I turned 17, I signed myself into the army as a food service specialist. Uh, and five months later, I was in you know Camp Humphrey, South Korea. Yeah. The name of the program is Born the Battle. We know, not, we know not every veteran obviously sees combat, but we know that every veteran experiences some sort of difficulty, adversity, challenge while they're in the military, some sort of sacrifice. Give us, give us an example of an experience like that for you. So my example is a little bit uh, extreme. I landed in South Korea, like I said, I was very young. I was 17 years old. Um, I just happened to be the only um, young white female in this particular dining facility that I was working in. And a couple of months later, there was another one that joined. Um, we had some difficulties with the leader of the dining facility. She despised us for some reason and took it out on us to the point that our supervisors marched us to the Equal Opportunity Office and said, you need to file a complaint. This has gone too far. So a couple of months later, I ended up in the hospital a couple of hours away for an emergency surgery. And when I came back in Korea, they sent you to the big hospital two hours away. And then they sent you back on a bus. And when I got off the bus, having had my IVs removed an hour prior, two hours prior, my commander, my sergeant major, my first sergeant were standing there waiting for me. And they said, 
then it's gone. And I, I was confused, and I said, I don't understand. Where did she go? We're roommates. It's, she's supposed to be working a 12-hour shift today. Uh, and they said, no, she hung herself in the public bathroom, and she left the suicide note on the E7's door. And we don't want you to talk about it, and you'll be packing out of Korea within 10 days. Uh, so 10 days later, I was in Fort Hood, Texas, still a little bewildered as to what had happened. Uh, come to find out, the Army swept the EEO complaint under the rug, and they sent the supervisor back to the Army band. Uh, I had just turned 18. I was in a, another new place, and I have to say it was very traumatizing for me because the military life that I had grown up with, with the Marine Corps and the Navy and then the Army, uh, I felt very betrayed. I felt like fair and just were four-letter words because nobody cared. Um, it was difficult. Uh, I, I came up, they asked me to go back to school to reclass, and in doing so I would have had to extend my contract. And at that point I was so disillusioned. Uh, and, and, you know, circumstance, I, was, I knew I was young and I was in, a, in an odd position. Uh, I just ETSed out. I was done. I gave up the military. Um, I ended up, I was married by then, and I followed my uh, husband to Kentucky, to Fort Knox. I was still surrounded by military, living on a military base, and one of my old uh, supervisors from Fort Hood convinced me to join the Indiana National Guard, which was, in and of itself, after having come from two very hard-charging units in Korea and Texas, where we spent three weeks of the month in the field, to go to the Indiana National Guard at the time, and we're talking, you know, 2000. Uh, so this is before, even before 9-11, was interesting because the farm boys rolled up in their tractors <laughs> <laughs> to drill. Uh, I functioned as a recruiter, so I went to high schools around the country and talked about how good it was to be part of the military family. Uh, I was still trying to justify at that time that it could be good. Uh, I think I matured into that perspective, but again, I had personal trust issues, so yeah, that was kind of my, yeah. Okay. Changed my life course. Again, I came out of the Army with a lot of disillusionment and, you know, broken feet. So I, I served as disability, which is what eventually pushed me out of the Guard. They gave me a choice. I could choose one or the other. How long did, I mean, I imagine you left the Army with some sort of disdain for it um, because of, of how that transpired. How long did it take you to become proud again that you were a veteran of the United States Army and, you know, speaking well of your of your time in if if, if, That's if a, you ever came to that point I did but it's a good question I when I did my final out physical for the army I sat down with as do does every soldier um, a psychiatrist and you go through a mental health thing especially because I'd had the the roommate with the suicide and he looked at me and he said well you got PTSD and I was like you're crazy guy I'm, I'm 21 years old I'm fine, like this, I'm good. And he said, no, you working 80 hours a week and chain smoking and I'm watching you sit here and fidget and every time the door shuts, you about hit the ground. He's like, you, you need to seek help. And I brushed it off, I was young and brash and I thought, no, I just need to put the army behind me and keep on going and everything will be fine. Uh, I ended up moving to Virginia to work with PEO Soldier, which is the large organization that outfits the army. So I went back into a pseudo-military environment. We had active duty, we had government people, and every person that worked for me, we had several hundred fielders, was all veterans and military. So I went back into a very similar environment. It wasn't until I left that job to finish my master's degree and have children a couple years later that I realized I had kind of functioned in this military environment for so long I didn't understand civilians. I got my first job where they handed me health insurance paperwork. 
and I didn't know what that was because <laughs> I'd been on campus and TRICARE uh, for all of my life as a dependent or active duty or a spouse. Uh, so the first time I was, I was bewildered, which is kind of funny because I ended up getting an HR degree. <laughs> so at the end of the day, I learned how to fill out the paperwork. Uh, it was about that time that I started to miss the military. I started to miss the rank and structure. I started to miss being able to figure out if people had credibility based on their rank and their position. Uh, in the civilian world, a title can mean anything or can mean nothing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the saying is if you have, you either have title or money. And it took me a couple of years to figure that out. So kind of along the way, I grew more fond of the Army and its experiences. But Yeah. I think what's interesting about, uh, you know, when you, when you get into the civilian sector, and a lot, of, a lot of veterans miss that structure, the organizational structure, not only with the chain of command structure, but also, like, policy structure. Like, I know yes. exactly what's expected of me. I know exactly what the consequences the should game. be, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I think one thing that is definitely missed in, um, and I, I'm definitely, uh, um, I'm guilty of this, I think we miss, uh, one thing I miss is the respect that the, mil like, in the, when you're in the military, you're an E4, you give every E6 respect and proper greeting of the day you know the the pleasantries and the you know yes. you know the good morning to a social standard right but like that's equitable in the in the civilian sector even inside the same job if you are you know if you're whatever position you are and then the equivalent of your supervisor but from a different part of the organization comes by you don't pay them the same sort of respect that you would your supervisor, and in, in a lot of ways, you see people speaking to that person like they're a peer, and that is something that is so that you just don't see that in the it's military. And I definitely think definitely discomforting. Yeah. yeah, and I'm guilty of that, right? I'm guilty of like, well, that person is, you know, like in like in government work, that person's a GS14, but they're not they're not my leadership, so I'm going to talk <laughs> to them like they're like they're my peer, or my colleague, and that's. Um, that's something that I think that it takes veterans a long time to get used to, especially on the, when they're on the receiving end of that to where they're not getting the respect they're sort of used to um, as being a, a, a person of, uh, a, a, and a, being in a supervisor role or leadership role. Um, what's... Um, Before you move on, oh, I would sure. offer one funny thing that I miss, um, and I think several of my female women, my women vet friends would also echo this. I didn't learn how to be a girl really well, so <laughs> dressing appropriately, like what's the right color shoes, or do you wear hose, or you know, what, what's the makeup of the day? Uh, I do actually miss the structure of yeah. going class A, class B, you know, sure. to the uniform, <laughs> is you just roll out of bed and put your hair in a bun and keep going. So being a civilian, you are judged very heavily, I think, as a female. From my, in my opinion anyway, on what you wear and how you appear. Yeah. Uh, but there are no written rules. Every company is different. Every organization is different. Yeah. And so I have found that, that that causes me a lot of angst sometimes. Yeah. I see, I see um, I hear from a lot of women veterans that they, right, because when, when they attend, you know, when you attend military functions, even if you're going as the guest, a lot of times they still wear the uniform or whatever. And then finally getting out means that every event they go to, they get to dress like how they want, right? Like there's no, like they get to explore that part, that side of them again. Um, and I hear, uh, you're talking, it's a bit of a frustration. <laughs> I've is. heard the other side of where it's almost <laughs> like this relief of like, oh, I get to do this again. I get to um, uh, be that part of me again. Um, so after you get, how long until you found 
um, a renewed purpose. Did you find it in that, that first job you mentioned? Or? I didn't. Um, I would say this is a funny story. I'd left corporate, I'd left working a full-time job to have my child, my first son, my son, and um, finished my master's degree from home. And I had a daughter and finished, my, you know, wrapped everything up and was kind of at loose ends for a couple of weeks. And a friend of mine posted on Facebook, hey, I'm, I'm looking for a woman veteran subject matter expert for five to 10 hours a week working from home. And I immediately messaged her and said, this sounds great. I don't know that I'm an expert, but I'm definitely a woman vet. My mom's a woman vet, so I at least know two people's perspectives. Yeah. And she said, you have a five-week-old and a two-and-a-half-week-old. What are you thinking? And I said, no, I need the brain stimulation. Uh, that job was my first job for a national nonprofit and dragged me immediately into 40-hour work weeks. I ended up getting a nanny and um, launching my own business because I had been working through a consulting company who was just tacking extra cost onto my cost. And so when the contract expired, we came to a mutual agreement that I would just contract directly. So it cost me 100 bucks to incorporate in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. Yeah. And I've, that was nine years ago. So I've been kind of single-handedly sole proprietor since yeah. then. Uh, but that launched me back into the world of advocacy in the veteran space. And at that time, there were not a lot of women veterans showing up for things. And so I would get emails every single day, like, we need a woman vet to come and speak on a panel or we're looking for a woman vet with this kind of experience. Um, and so seeing a lot of those responses, I kind of committed to myself. Uh, one of my mottos is don't complain about things unless you're willing to help them change or help make change. And so when I could, whenever I could, I would uh, show up or find a friend to show up. And actually that led to a really strong network of, I say, professional women veterans in, the, in this area. So we try to make sure that the bases are always covered if somebody asks for a specific yeah. perspective. One thing I always try to do, um, and like, like I mentioned before, the, the opportunities have, aren't uh, as abundant as they used to be, but you know, when people are, would invite me to be part of a panel uh, or speaking engagement of some sort, if I couldn't do it, I would always recommend somebody. Yes. And I would always ask that person first, like, hey, I, I've been invited to something, I can't make it, do you mind if I recommend you? And if they say sure, then I make the recommendation. Um, but I think, it's a, I think it's a good way to make that you are ensuring that the right representation is being put put there because uh, uh, I mean, there's been times where I haven't done that, and then I see who like ends up yes. there, and I'm just like, oh, like that could have been way better if they <laughs> if, if they knew who to like reach who out to. Reach out to, and that's kind of the what's kept me in this arena is once you know who's good at what and where they are and what their experiences are, it's easy to make those recommendations. But I also think if a business asks you asks for a veteran to come speak. I think we should try. I, I think it's, it's. I do take it as a serious duty that we can't complain again. Don't complain about things you're not willing to help change. Right, the civilian yeah. military divide. I mean, we could talk about that all day, but all day, all from, year, all year, <laughs> from, <laughs> from every perspective. Yeah. But again, you can't fault if if nobody's showing up, if nobody's stepping into the breach, then you can't be mad at the at the employers for consist, consistently not understanding. One thing, um, one thing I've really appreciated about the. Um, the veteran community, at least I've noticed in the past couple of years, is it's no longer just the usual suspects. Like, I feel like for... There's been a turnover. Yeah, I feel like since I got out in 2011 to now, in the first 60, 70% of that time, I feel like I kept on seeing the same names in news articles, on panels, speaking, like doing keynotes, being, you know, representing the veteran space. And I feel mm -hmm. like we're seeing a new wave of veterans come through 
we're seeing older veterans pipe up and yeah. be like, oh, no, I want my voice to be a part of this, uh, this uh, conversation as well. Um, how, you know, what have you seen from your perspective on that, especially when it comes to women veterans? So I'd say for a good 18 months, there were 10 or 12 of us that were routinely involved in every, you know, American Legion and DAV and VFW. We were SVA. There were same faces, same faces. I actually, um, I got so burned out that I'd step, I stepped away for a while and I kind of really focused on um, homelessness for women veterans. Um, and then the Camp Lejeune uh, toxic water, which is also a, vet, a veteran and uh, family member issue. I was a family member. And so I kind of narrowed my focus intentionally because I was just burnt out from going and going and going and was really glad to see that there are, there are a new, there is a new wave of fresh faces. Yeah. Uh, I would say I recognize only about 50% of them now. And that's yep. pretty good considering I had for a long time, I had all of them on speed dial. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what's cool good. though, is I feel like the, the usual suspects that we're referring to are now at the pinnacle of sort of where they, you know, like Jared Lyon, now the mm -hmm. president at SVA. And, Love you know, Jared. I remember watching him work through SVA and Get that opportunity, right. you know, but now you have people, you know, uh, you know, quote unquote, beneath him in the organization yeah. that are becoming the new role players in their positions, um, and so it's cool to see not only the people that I worked with so closely through those years finally reach where they need to be to be effective, but like you said, that new generation's coming Sticking up and in, 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 uh, yeah. well, and feeling comfortable in doing so and feeling welcomed and supported yeah. and willing and ready to tell their story, and I think. You know, ten years ago, when I eight nine years ago, when I got into this, that really wasn't the case. It was like, well, we really only want you to say this much. And I do feel now that the questions are, well, tell us everything. We want to listen. We want to hear. And that's a great culture attitude shift. So let's let's briefly talk about entrepreneurship because I know it's some it's something that uh, in the VA world I don't get to talk about a whole lot because VA has limited resources for that. But it is something that's very popular in the veteran community. Yes. Of course, going back all the way to World War II, when just under fifty percent of World War II veterans started their own business. I didn't know um, it was that high. Yeah, it was. It's just at the, I want to say it's forty nine point something percent uh, that came back and did some some sort of entrepreneurial venture. Um, and that number's down, of course, in the veteran community, um, but still a lot of veteran entrepreneurs out there. Um, so how did you just, how did you navigate the intimidating uh, venture of starting, of becoming your own, uh, you know, being self-employed? And more importantly, where did you go when you were unsure about something? And I think, like we hear about Bunker Labs. Such a long great, list. Yeah, but uh, as... <laughs> You know, maybe maybe just some of the highlights okay. that you know were especially effective. So when I started out, I didn't know what I was doing, and I had an existing client. So I filed for a business license. I didn't need any money. They were paying me directly. I didn't need a business, a formal business plan. Uh, they were paying me just to be a subject matter expert, which was great. Uh, eventually, that foundation wound down, and so I came to the fork in the road. Do I go back to an office job, or do I continue to try to have my cake and eat it too? At the time, having young kids was very being home with my young children was very important to me, but I still wanted to maintain uh, a career because at some point, young children grow up and go away, unfortunately. Um, so I started looking around at different resources. I actually attended one of the very first VWISE programs, which is Veteran Women in the Spirit of Entrepreneurship, I think, okay. which is the IVMF program. It's a three-day course. I went to the Baltimore one. Uh, I thought it was okay. I thought it was, for me at the time, they were kind of just getting started. It was a little broad, so it didn't address my specific needs, which were kind of niche. I was really looking for government clients or nonprofit clients in the Women Vet Zone. I didn't have a ton of other consulting experience. 
So I went to that. They actually set you up with free SCORE, which is another uh, SBA program, I believe. Okay. They offer free counseling for veterans, and you go on the website, and there's 20 different classes, and it says here's where this class is and here's when that class is. You can also apply for a mentor through them. Uh, luckily, I didn't need that. I live in glorious Alexandria, Virginia, and we have 292 veteran-owned small businesses yes. just in our little town. So I was actually on the Veterans Advisory Group uh, and Emily McMahon kicked off. We, she started Capital Post, uh, which combined with Bunker Labs now. Yeah. And we've gone through a couple of iterations, but it's a super strong, five miles away from my house, networking group um, that's gotten great traction as the place to go for help. So I kind of I need fell to get into... connected with that. Oh, I, I live in Alexandria, <laughs> and uh, I am a... There. Still don't know what I'm doing, entrepreneur, so I, I need to... Uh, I will introduce you anytime. They're wonderful. Uh, we do lots of events. They do pitch competitions. Okay. Um, we do... They actually... Bunker Labs just signed with WeWork here in D.C. Oh, and they sure. do big events here, and there's co-working space, and it's been a, an extremely fruitful relationship on, on a lot of levels because they're so... It is so tightly knit. Um, so that actually got me through my next several steps of going after a government contract on my own or how to be a sub or a prime and getting through um, some of the CVE processes, the Certified Veteran uh, Enterprise, which is the D, uh, excuse me, the VA's business. And nobody really uses that except the VA. So I got that certificate certification. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really need it. <laughs> uh, they actually helped me get my service-disabled veteran-owned status for my business also. And none of this is costly. It's t It takes time yeah and it takes knowing you know how to do the paperwork um but it wasn't pa it wasn't uh, painful and horrible because there's always somebody next to you going oh yeah i remember that that and one thing that i've learned and i don't know if this is a recent thing or if this has always been the case we just didn't know it but the entities that we're so afraid of are actually so helpful yes. the irs is helpful every time that i call them VA tax is helpful every time that I get a hold of them. And I'm sure, and yeah. SBA, SBA has S been one of the sure. greatest. They, hey, we can't give you a loan, but we've got five people that can help you. Yeah. And here's the process that you need to go through. I was shocked. <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna ask one question on, one more question on entrepreneurship that I know anybody who is in the middle of it is curious about, because uh, it seems to be a reoccurring thing and then we'll move on. Accounting, how do you approach accounting? Because for, for since I've started this business or started like adventuring my own business, I ask people in this area, who can you recommend a good accountant? And every time I hear, I just let go of my last one, and I'm also looking looking for someone else. Uh, yeah. So how do, so like how do you, how do you approach accounting in your I business? I would say that I approached it in that I needed to learn the rules again with the rules. I like rules before I went out and did it on my own. So I did pay a, a local CPA um, $1,500 my first year in business to go through everything with the fine tooth comb and set me up for the next several years. Um, so I actually licensed QuickBooks, which I think is like 70 bucks a year. Sure. And that's what I use now. But I paid the CPA to go through it with me to set all the different accounts up because some of my accounts are hourly, some are um, monthly. There's a million different ways to slice the pie. So I like expertise but then yeah. i also don't like to keep telling out the money so, yeah uh, there are several good cpas in alexandria i'm not going to name them off the yeah, top that's, of my yeah, head yeah, just yeah. we don't case. need actual recommendations i'm just curious yeah, the, the approach that you I, have re towards... I recommend paying somebody when you first start off because okay. there's a lot of pitfalls i bought three or four different tax savvy for small businesses books from amazon and it is a quagmire yeah 
uh, especially if you start getting into company property or company expense accounts, sure. uh, which in DC, it's $20 to park. You really need to be able to expense that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it was valuable. He found expenses that I think I would have just assumed like, oh, if we're going to have lunch, I'll just pay for that out of my pocket. And he's like, no, if you talk about business, you know, you can write 50% off. And I remember thinking, I just saved myself thousands of dollars a year. Uh, <laughs> but once you learn the rules, I think QuickBooks, it takes me 15 minutes a month. I have three longstanding clients and I yeah. you know, do my invoices. And when the checks come in, I go in and check them off. Yeah. So it can be manageable. Okay. Uh, Very well. Yeah. So let's talk about Final Salute, your involvement with, with them. Maybe, yeah, briefly describe that. So I met the founder of Final Salute, Jazz Booth, several years ago on one of the circuits that they'd requested women vets or probably a women vet conference and was immediately drawn to the cause because when I was seven years old, my mother had come off of active duty and was staying home with four young kids. And my um, stepfather came home and was progressively abusive over the course of a year. So she packed us up in the middle of the night and moved us to the other side of town. Uh, and went, we went on food stamps and HUD housing and um, WIC, and she got Pell Grants and put herself back through college. But we were so narrowly, we so narrowly avoided the streets. Yeah. You know, had she not been as tenacious as she is, uh, she could have landed in the streets. Because when she went to the Marine Corps and said, your Marine is hitting me, they laughed and said, well, as long as he can show up at formation tomorrow. And so she again felt betrayed, right? That's horrible. That's 25 years, 30 years ago. Holy <laughs> so, smokes. Anyways, we used all the social safety net interventions. We were fine. But had you know, had they not kicked in, had there not been HUD housing yeah. available, had she not been able to get the Pell Grant and better, you know, she got her nursing degree and um, has been a government employee for the last, you know, 20 years since then. She, uh, she works for the Department of Navy still. I've kept meeting women who would say, I wasn't prepared to transition. I wasn't prepared to get out especially in this area. They, with the long-standing up-tempo, up divorce rates were skyrocketing. A lot of them were single mothers, and they couldn't find the resources for help. Well, Jazz uh, has her own very unique story, which you can learn uh, if you go to Final Salute or Google her name. She's, she's told it a million times, so I won't retell it, but I will say it did strike a chord for me because it wasn't what you think of when you think of homeless vets. And these were young women with nurses. We had two women, sorry, with children. We had two women deploy from our transitional home deploy. They were still in the guard. One was in the guard, one was in the reserve. So the thought of saying that, it, it hurts my stomach. Yeah. Um, I worked for the organization for several months, and now at this time I'm kind of like an ambassador at large. Um, I have a huge, we have a, one transitional home here in Alexandria, and then we do provide emergency funding for as many people as we can raise money for. But it's not broken down, worn out, drug abusing, yeah. People, it's life happens, and sometimes in a circumstance, you don't have five thousand dollars for first month's rent and safety deposit, security deposit. That's what it costs here. Yeah, it's twenty five hundred dollars for a three bedroom townhouse, mm -hmm. in most of the twenty mile radius from where we're sitting. I don't know very many people, even with good, comfortable government jobs, that can come up with five grand. Yeah, at the drop of a dime. So I feel I was very, uh, given my previous work with entrepreneurship and employment and transition. I was interested in how do we stop this, and we figured out it is, and the VA has too. It is so much cheaper to stop homelessness than it is to reverse it. Yes, so, <laughs> that is such a 
it, and, and it's a slippery slope. Like a it's week amazing. In a car. It's taking us taking us yeah. this long to really realize that too. Well, this was when I got involved with um, VA with Final Sleep. This was before the HUD Vash stuff uh, mm. vouchers had come out, and so we were really having a hard time working with landlords and raising money. I, and again, people say, "How much can I give you?" And I say, "Hey, I raise money five bucks at a time because yeah. it'll help somebody." Uh, but yes, t usually our average intervention, we do not give the veteran the money. We give the um, whoever the bill holder is. Sure. So it's utilities. Um, Rent, we pay, we'll pay for childcare, and uh, we'll pay for basic transportation. We won't pay mortgages or car notes. That's not, you don't actually, those aren't necessities. Yeah. Although they're niceties. Uh, we pay it directly to whoever the bill is due. It's about $1,200. That's about what it costs us to keep somebody off the streets. It's amazing, isn't it? Meanwhile, if they but hit the streets, then there's, than, yeah. everything else is <laughs> yeah. up in the air. I, um, you know, I, I don't. I never like to say that I was at risk for homelessness because I never would have ended. I had a support system that was there. Oh, are you a couch surfer? But I was a couch surfer yes. for a while, right? Like DC is expensive. Yes. Um, you know, you, you look at just a random comparison. Uh, you know, you, you look at a city like Las Vegas. You go 20 minutes outside of Las Vegas, or even 10 minutes outside of Las Vegas, like Summerlin or something like that. You can find uh, a three-bedroom. Uh, apartment or house that's like less than fifteen hundred dollars, and yeah. you go that same distance in this area, and you're still paying twice that much. Right. And I was living in the city, trying to attend a in-city university. The mm -hmm. GI Bill helped, um, but I think one big misconception that people have with the GI Bill—it's not a free it's ride. It's not a free ride. And I have used the GI Bill and Voc Rehab, and neither are free rides. Both yeah. cost me time, you know, money out of pocket. Not. Wonderful resource. Yeah, not that complaining. Is, exactly. But, but it, you're not making money off of it. But it takes something else. Yes. In a lot of markets, it's GI Bill plus whatever plus the next option. And for me, the next option was spend my time honing my craft and allow some student loans to keep me afloat. But even then, didn't it's like tough. it was still tough to pay bills. Like I Airbnb'd and subletted and couch surfed for like Nine months. And that's exactly what we find that women vets do. The best worst story that I have is we had a young woman. She was um, ETSing as an E5. She had a young daughter. She did everything right. She went to TAPS. She got a job offer from the government. Everything was going well. She got off. She went on terminal leave. And they came back and said, well, your clearance didn't come through yet. It's There's a backlog. Yeah. And she said, okay, no problem. In her mind, I think she assumed it would be a month or two, which is actually reasonable. Eight months later. Oh my goodness. Eight months later. So she'd run out her terminal leave. She'd gone through her savings. She had a small child. She had a lease that she'd signed. Yeah. And she had a job. She didn't do anything wrong. And she was evicted. So she landed in our home um, for six months. And then, you know, they could stay for up to two years and was out and back on her feet. But gosh, that's just the saddest thing. There wasn't anything she did wrong. And I think that's the most that frequently repeated phrase about homeless women vets and their children that I say to people, it isn't necessarily a bad decision. Most of the time it's just a life circumstance. How did you, in, in your work with homeless veterans, did, what did you see as far as pride getting in, in the way of being able to get the right resources? Cause you know, it's there, not pride. There were, well, so let, let me, let me qualify the question. Um, there were, there were times that, um, uh, you know, during my stint where it'd be three o'clock in the afternoon and I wasn't sure where I was going to be sleeping that night. I, I didn't know who I would have called. You know what I mean? Like had seven o'clock rolled around and I still didn't have a place to stay. I didn't know who I would have been comfortable with calling, admitting 
I don't have a place to live tonight and I need to at least spend the night tonight. And I don't know where I would have gone after that. So, you know, some of that's pride, some of that's uncertainty. Um, maybe it's not pride, but in, in that con, like, do you, did you see um, many cases where because they were they felt certain that they had a control over it or that that it was that their job was going to come through for them that they didn't get ahead of their situation maybe that's a better question so i would say from our perspective it was fear based because okay. a lot of we serve women and children and their children so safe and suitable housing for women and children is really our motto our number one goal um, they were afraid if they asked the system for help that the system would then get involved and there would be potential custody issues, there would be potential oh, yeah. sure. child support, child services issues, it would get back to their job. That They were just so afraid that if somebody found out that their situation was tenuous, it would cause, it would be much worse. So some of them, I remember one girl came to us, former airman, and she said, I went to the housing on base, the airman support, and said, please help me. And they said, well, what's your address? And she said, well, what's the address of this building? Because my car's parked out front, and that's where I live right now. Um, it, it, but it took her getting all the way to her and her young son sleeping in her car to go ask for help. And it was, we try to bridge that gap. It's hard. Yeah. But, and the VA, I have to say, in the past um, six years has really gone a long way. The HUD bash vouchers helped a lot. Um, the community center here in D.C. kind of stood up to help bridge the gap. It still is a niche need, and it is a need that's actually going up, just as what you know, veteran, female veteran suicide numbers are going up. Yeah. Hoping we can get ahead of the curve, but. Oh, where are we? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember what we what. This is this is the one thing about talking about stuff uh, when you talk uh, a lot before the the know, interview because you're like, wait, what is what has <laughs> actually made it onto record? What did we talk about before that? So I think that? the only thing that we haven't talked about that I, I kind of do think is an important shout out to the VA and in particular the DC VAMC caregiver caregiver. Yes, that's right. Yes, uh, I am what I would I would hate to say this that I'm more or less a professional patient. Uh, I drank toxic water as a kid. Thank you, Marine Corps. And the Army gave me some bad anthrax shots. And so my immune system is shot. Mm. Um, and because of that, I have, I go to the doctor a lot. Uh, I have found the DCVA to be the best long-term source of care because the My Healthy Vet program, the um, system, is phenomenal. So I have this long and varied health history. And to have it all captured in one place and to be able to go to one place and have a doctor order x-rays and manometry tests and uh, MRIs and literally go downstairs and go upstairs and all of the records are captured in one place. Even if the doctors change, the records are still there and that has been um, immensely helpful. That being said, I feel like everything in life happens for a reason and luckily I had learned to navigate the VA medical system pretty well um, for myself and I found myself in the position to become a caregiver. Um, one of my best friends from the Army has stage four cancer and was discovered at stage four cancer by the VA um, using an in-house mammography machine, which is impressive. They don't all have them, but the ones yeah. that they do have are awesome. The techs are fantastic. The radiologists are um, very prompt. They don't leave you guessing for weeks at a time, which can happen in the civilian world. And so I can honestly say that I've been in almost every clinic in the DCVAMC as either a caregiver or a patient myself, and have had phenomenal care. The uh, amazingly or surprisingly, the seven doctors um, that are my friends' doctors, they're all females, and they're strong and fantastic, uh, and full of hope. I mean, I think you can't in in a terminal cancer situation. 
it can be very gloomy. And the doctors are like, nope, we're not giving up. We're going to keep going. And uh, that's been fantastic. What, um, when, you took, when you took over the role of caregiver, um, what resources did VA have available to you that you weren't anticipating? Uh, so immediately once we were more or less accepted into the cancer program, they brought in a binder. And in the binder was uh, several different sections on um, social work, there's palliative pain management, and then there was an entire section on caregiving. There are caregiving meditation classes, there are caregiving groups. Uh, they offered, you know, they, if, I, they, if I needed counseling, that they gave me that resource. Uh, that's, they, that, we need to touch on that. That's very important. Sorry. It, yeah, it was. And I would say um, a couple of friends, I have reached out to other people that have been caregivers for longer than I have because there is a fatigue in it. And it isn't so much the facing of the illness. It's the repetition. It's const the hour-long drive to the VA to hurry up and wait for three or four hours to make an hour-long, you know, to sit at the pharmacy for an hour and make an hour-long drive. It's just a constant churn of going, going, going. Hey, remember to call the doctor. We've got, to, we need more cancer meds. Or it is such a constant presence in my life, just keeping up with all of that churn yeah. on top of, you know, a job and kids and such that it is, there is a, I would say burnout. Again, I got I've gotten exhausted, and luckily there have been resources that I could reach out and talk to, and the VA has been very helpful. Um, and also, and I found this very amazing because civilian doctors won't do that, they entered me into the system one time as the medical proxy, one time. I watched the woman type it in, and I have never had a problem getting answers. Every single doctor will talk to me just as readily as they will talk to my um, patient, friend. It's, what, and the reason why, uh, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, no, I, just, okay. I, um, I think it, that is, it's one of the turning points, I think, at VA is showing concern and care for those that are showing concern and care. And, and the example that I have is I contacted the Veterans Crisis Line one time on behalf of a friend, and after I talked to them about what my friend was going through, they then followed up with, well, how are you doing? How are you handling this? And so for them, to, for them to be able to do the same thing with caregivers, and I imagine there's other examples that I'm unaware of, of um, you know, you are taking the burden of this situation. How are you doing, and how can we help you with that? Yeah, they've been remarkable, and they haven't, I have had no pushback with access or being able to call back and ask additional questions. Uh, or being included on, you know, in conversations or communications, which is a big deal, especially in an acute situation or a terminal situation, because there's so many moving pieces and so many doctors. Um, they've been really wonderful, and I, 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 big, big credit to the DCVAMC because 15 years ago, when I first walked in there, it wasn't this way. Yeah. It was, hey, what's your sponsors last for, and what are you doing here, pretty little lady? What's your sponsors last for. Right, it's and so it's yeah. right, and now we have a, a women's clinic that's fully staffed. They just recently acquired um, a breast MRI coil, so now they can do not only mammograms in house, but they can do. Um, or excuse me, the breast MRI, which is kind of a next level of testing. They can do genetic counseling. We did telehealth for breast health. Uh, all of these are very highly, if you're in a situation where there's a question mark, these are services that you would have to go to three or four different places to get. And so to have them all under one roof with the level of expertise has been really great. Yeah. Oh, and they can do same day GYN uh, surgeries, which is also new because they used to send they used to patchwork it. So you'd go to Washington Hospital Center, you'd go to Walter Reed, everything was outsourced, and now it's kind of all under one roof. So again, yeah. I'm using all these services. That's because, awesome. I, hey, I want people to know it's great. It's yeah. been great. Do you find, um, 
How do you find caregiving as far as being like fulfillment and rewarding? Do you do you feel like you're? I know you know obviously it's it's a lot of work and you express that you, there's times you feel fatigued in it but I imagine you do it because there's some sort of fulfillment that's that's involved There is yeah. this particular person uh, is as as we finally coined it lovingly uh, I'm the daughter she never wanted <laughs> <laughs> and she is the grandmother that my children know yeah. uh, and they call her grandma and so I would consider her as close to family and so the reward is is getting to spend every day with her and getting to be a part, you know, helping to shoulder the burden, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's just, no, no, the doctor didn't say that because I wrote down this. Um, I think anything I can take off of her because she doesn't complain ever. Yeah. So I'm willing to do the best I can, even if it's just chauffeur duty. Sure. Uh, so I have two more questions for you. Okay. So first question, um, get, tell, tell us about a, a talent, a discipline, a skill set, some sort of experience that you got, gained while you were in the military that's contributing to your success today. <laughs> I always wanted to grow up and be patient. I would say that I am, have never been patient. I've always been quick, fast, and in a hurry. And hurry up and wait was a lesson that I learned. <laughs> because you do a lot of standing around in basic training. Uh, and, and ever since then, right? It's it, you, so I will. You'll notice if you look at my bag, I carry a book everywhere I go, and I have learned like to just take a dip, deep breath. Uh, another useful, and I don't think it's an army program, but it came somewhere in one of the management courses I took while I was working with the army. Was wait, uh, W A I T. Why am I talking? Hmm, and yeah. so I, I take those two things. We be patient. And, and wait, why am I talking? Yeah, Pretty I like that. Why am I talking? Yeah, um, it makes you stop and think. I go. <laughs> so, so what I've one thing that podcasting has helped me with is the discipline of making sure that I'm actually listening and not waiting for my opportunity to talk. Um, I, I could work on that. Yeah, and and I've had to do it because. Um, as a podcast host, I am in a way waiting for my opportunity for the next question, but I also, because I'm like, okay, that's a good question. I want to make sure I don't forget to ask that. So then I'm sitting here th half thinking about the question, <laughs> half trying to listen. And I've, in the couple times where I've been bad at that, I have missed a better follow-up question to what's been said. Um, and, you know, it turns out fine, but, you know, I, I go back and listen to him like, oh, you know what, if, if I had just been listening I would have dismissed that question because I wasn't as good at the question as I would have asked had I really been paying attention. We've talked about final salutes. We've talked about um, some other veterans in a space that are doing great things. Give me a veteran or a veteran organization that you're familiar with that has you excited about what they're doing right now. Oh, that's a good one. Um, there, there are a lot of great programs uh, in the works. Oh, I gotta think. Oh. I'm really biased because I'm going to start working for the Center for Women Vets. <laughs> well, and I by, feel like, by the time people have heard this. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So uh, I'll be, I'll be you've just started for working for the, the Center for Women in, Vets. In 10 days, I yeah. will be a government employee for the first time ever. Uh, I'm very excited about what they're doing because I think we're finally connecting all the dots across VA and the different, the different offerings for women veterans. And sure. so I've really enjoyed, um, since Kayla's taken over, we are getting weekly updates of news that's relevant. There are weekly updates of research that's coming out. And there's so much content that it's really nice to get it in a succinct email uh, blast. And then any of the marketing materials that are you know free for distribution are coming through too. Yeah. So it makes it really easy to click forward and, and, and push out yeah. the great things that V is doing. I think part of the reason that made me come 
want to work for the government is that I think the VA doesn't do a great job of it telling about its successes. And I will be the first to admit I have been through some personal failures with yeah. care and disability sure. and you know things falling through the cracks. But on the on the whole, compared to the civilian world, I mean they're Yeah. <laughs> uh, Danielle, thank you so much for your time. No, this has been great. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. To keep track of everything that's going on over the Center for Women Veterans over at va.gov slash women vet. All of their uh, news and announcements are made there. Our Medal of Honor citation reading for the week is Frederick Fisher, who served on board the USS Philadelphia in Samoa, 1st of April, 1899. Served in the U.S. Navy as a gunner's mate first class. This was a part of the, this is classified under the Samoa Campaign, honor, Year of Honor, 1899. Citation reads, served on board the USS Philadelphia, Samoa, 1 April, 1899. Serving in the presence of the enemy on this date, Fisher distinguished himself by his conduct. We honor his service. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Appreciate every one of you out there that is listening to my voice right now. It's been uh, just an absolute honor to grow this podcast, to bring great guests to the show, uh, and just to learn so much about these veterans and, and things that are going on inside the veteran space. Benefits Breakdown, which uh, s- sort of trickled in as it starts uh, and has been a little hit and miss uh, coming back on Monday. Uh, it's been a little more difficult than I than I thought to get some of that uh, material, but we're, we're getting the ball rolling again next week. Uh, So I'll talk to you then on Monday. This is Born the Battle. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off.